from American Exception. I'm Aaron Good, and today I'm speaking with Seth Harp. Seth is an investigative reporter, foreign correspondent, and magazine writer. He is a contributing editor at Rolling Stone and has also reported from Ukraine, Syria, Iraq, and Mexico for publications including Harper's Magazine, The New Yorker, The Intercept, The New York Times, The Daily Beast, and Columbia Journalism Review. He is a veteran of the Iraq War and before becoming a journalist was an assistant attorney general for the state of Texas. He is currently working on a book about the same subject we're going to be discussing, The Fort Bragg Murders. And as ever, our discussion also goes into some of the bigger issues that might help us make sense of all this madness. Please check out the show notes for links. Seth Harp, thank you for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. So you have written a lot about just all the mayhem and, and, and bizarre events that have transpired in Fort Bragg around Special Forces. Um, can you explain the significance of, of Special Forces in the U.S. military and uh, of Fort Bragg in particular? It's a good question. You know, it's interesting. Special Forces is a sort of uniquely American invention. Um, it's really not that old. I mean, I guess there's always been a concept of like an elite corps of soldiers. I mean, I can, I grew up in Texas to like church as a kid, read a lot of the Bible. I can even remember like Bible passages where they're talking about King David's picked men, you know, it's like you consider that sort of proto uh, special forces or any number of, um, uh, like I said, elite corps that have existed within larger militaries over the years. But the, um, particularly American concept of special forces doesn't date back any longer than, you know, to the Vietnam era or just before the Vietnam era um, in Vietnam. And the whole idea was to have, you know, special means unconventional. Uh, Special means covert, usually. Um, It means non-traditional ways of achieving military objectives through a small force of, you know, specially picked and highly, highly trained um, soldiers. And I think a sort of classic special forces mission is to go into a country um, and partner up with a, what they call an indigenous force. By that, they just mean you know, local um, security forces or local military forces that are there. Train them up along U.S. Um, or two U.S. standards of uh, you know, tactics and um, also use language instruction as well, uh, learn to communicate with them in their local language and then use those proxy forces to accomplish uh, U.S. objectives. Um, Now, the track record of this has been extremely mixed, uh, to say the least, over the years. I personally think that the whole concept of special forces has been an utter failure um, and that in particular, the reorganization of our military after 9-11 to make special forces the whole whole ballgame, so to speak, has been just a disaster. And, you know, a lot of what we're seeing, um, especially around Fort Bragg right now, but also in the Navy SEALs and Naval Special Warfare, um, you know, I think is a, is a symptom of that. Do you trace this back to, say, I mean, of course, there's been counterinsurgency and such, I guess, for the U.S. You have, the, of course, the Indian Wars first, but then early in terms of overseas wars, you have. Um, the Philippines, I think, would be like a, a pre-World War II example. And then after World War II, you have people like Lansdale in the Philippines 
and then the, all the advisors that got sent into Vietnam. I mean, are, is this the sort of uh, historical background for these for these entities today? Yeah, definitely. I think that's very fair. You know, I, a moment ago I traced it back to the Vietnam era when the Army Special Forces, like as an official organization, was created. Um, U.S. Army Special Forces, uh, or uh, now it's called uh, U.S. Army Special Operations Command, also known as USASOC, uh, colloquially referred to as as the Green Berets. Um, but certainly, those those are the, in the Philippines and Indian Wars. Those are absolutely antecedents of these modern day formations. Absolutely right. Is there? It, you say that there's few successes of this. Are, what are the places where they could say that this was? These me- using these deploying these guys in this way has actually been successful. Pretty much none, um, and that's consistent with the whole of U.S. military history since 1945. It's sometimes kind of astonishing to reflect back uh, and think that on, on how few uh, victories of any kind, military victories of any kind, the U.S. has, has had since 1945. Practically every major military engagement since then has ended in abject failure, usually against a much weaker uh, and underfunded enemy, you know, in particular, uh, the North Vietnamese, um, you know, I think I would say argue that Korea was a loss for the United States, uh, given the balance of military power, the U.S. should have easily defeated the North Koreans and failed to. Uh, then, of course, there's um, Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, don't even need to say anything about that. You know, it, it, just the, these are all just bywords for massive catastrophic military failures. And They've all come about with, with the possible exception of Korea, um, in part as a result of U.S. strategic reliance on this concept of special forces that demonstrably does not work, but still enjoys this enormous amount of um, prestige and influence within the Pentagon. Right. And it seems that this comes in part from realities of, you know, living, a, having a democracy that's sort of prosperous, where at least prosper enough, prosperous enough that it's hard to get a lot of people that want to join the military. And so, and a draft isn't really popular and that, you know, we saw what happened with that. So you, I mean, this was kind of what I think Kennedy put those advisors in and and was hoping put them in and train, train up the South Vietnamese and then leave, you know, in 65, that's more sort of my take on it. But regardless the steps of putting these advisors in in Vietnam, for example, really was a. It's like you want to fight a war, but you you know you'd rather fight it with Asian boys, like uh, LBJ said. And so you you have a small number of guys in this case training them, but they but then they inv- invariably end up carrying out operations, right? They invariably end up carrying out operations. You mean the proxy forces? Yeah. Well, no. Even the even the U.S. I mean, there were even U.S. law. The U.S. was supposed to be having advisors just in Vietnam, for example, uh, under Kennedy. But then they get that. But they but then they end up being sent out to do other, you know, actual military things. You know, it's a yes and no. I do hear what you're saying. Typically, the insertion of special forces points towards a much larger engagement. I can recall that in uh, 2015, when President Obama was very reluctant to send troops back into Iraq and Syria, um, who, uh, but did so uh, under the belief, you know, his national security advisors telling him that it was essential to stop ISIS. So he starts with a few hundred special forces, or actually I think it was like 50 that they first sent uh, to Syria when there were the first U.S. troops in Syria. That certainly pointed towards you know great to greater involvement to where I think today we have probably about 4,000 
over there, although it's un- very unclear because uh, government officials consistently lie about that. Um, but in any event, you know, I was in Raqqa during uh, the Battle of uh, 2017, and I fully expected to see um, U.S. special operators engaged in combat with ISIS. Uh, however, although I did see those guys in the city, you know, during the battle, uh, I, they actually weren't fighting. Uh, I didn't see any of them pulling triggers or they were just driving around in armored vehicles and just kind of chilling with their iPads, you know, and um, probably I would guess those guys knowing their personality types and uh, and their training probably really wish they could be in the fighting. But, you know, part of the reason why the Pentagon relies on these guys is because they're like managers of proxy forces and um, they themselves uh, tend not to get themselves killed, uh, which is a big advantage from the point of view of U.S. Uh, war planners who want uh, to push for this or that armed conflict, but at the same time have to um, deal with the with American public opinions, uh, almost complete unwillingness to accept U.S. casualties. I mean, I think that was a big lesson of the Iraq war is that the public will not stand. They don't care if you do wars. They don't care if you bomb foreign capitals. They don't care if it's all based on a lie. They don't care if it costs a trillion dollars. But when you start having caskets coming back consistently from from unpopular conflicts like Iraq, that tends to be a hard limit on U.S. military power, where there actually starts to be some, you know, typically there's zero democratic control over foreign policy in the United States. But when you start talking about hundreds of U.S. casualties, that does produce a uh, uh, feedback uh, that it can influence politics that will uh, cause a war to come to a stop. So all that's just a long-winded way of uh, answering your question. I hope that that uh, addressed what you're what you're getting at there. Yeah, um, yeah. There's yeah. more I could. Uh, there's more that I could ask about about our about your time over there around Raqqa and so on. But I wanted to talk about Fort Bragg, so I'm gonna yeah, I'm gonna ask about that. I find that whole thing very very weird, and ISIS was so convenient for u.s foreign policy objectives and yet i can believe it gets presented to obama as isis is this threat and so on and i mean these guys it's this is just amazing but to bring this back to fort bragg and uh north carolina um well can i just say one thing about that please sure sure. i don't endorse any one theory about the origins of isis over another um really i'm not trying to be cute about it i just have no idea I will say, though, that it is perfectly mainstream opinion in the Middle East that ISIS is just a sock puppet controlled by the U.S. government. Yeah. Um, even Con- even normal, Patrick, like, I think Patrick <laughs> Cockburn admitted that. Patrick Cockburn said if you ask anyone in Iraq, they all, everyone yeah. said you can't find someone who doesn't think that ISIS is CIA, yeah. essentially. Yeah, they all think that. Yeah, they all think that. And, you know, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi first appears in, a, in, a, in, in Camp Boka. In, in Basra, and he first appears in U.S. military custody. It's the first place this guy exists on the face of the planet. Before that, there's like no record of him even existing. Yeah, I know. So, but but again, I know that's a rabbit hole we want to go down. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's it's it, it all. There's a number of. It seems like that's the so much of U.S. foreign policy in the you know since the 70s was these these operate these kind of outfits and these weirdos, and they have these strange connections and we'll never get to the bottom of it. But um, it, it, in North Carolina recently, we have all of these grisly murders, and some of them are domestic disputes. They don't always, they don't necessarily seem like gangland violence, but some of it does seem like gangland violence. Some of it seems like insane domestic violence. Um, what? When did it become clear to people that there was some bit problem at Fort Bragg? Because I've been seeing things about this on Twitter for a while. 
about the strange number of deaths. And I kind of speculated, well, maybe these are guys getting killed overseas and they're just lying about it, uh, <laughs> falsifying it so they no. don't have to reveal where they're carrying out operations. But that would that and maybe that's true for some of them. Who knows? But that there are other ones that are clearly like we basically know what happened and it's insane or it was definitely situated in Fort Bragg. So how did this come? How did this become a, a story that more people picked up on? Um, I think that, you know, I've spent a lot of time looking in the news archives, uh, recently, uh, and I think that Fort Bragg in this part of North Carolina has always been a, um, a hotspot for lack of a better term of weird, uh, murders that remain unsolved, uh, also of a very, um, like shock, like shocking type of like uh, domestic violence type of murders, um, it's been a thing for a while going back to the, the Jeffrey McDonald case. And even before that strange disappearances, I mean, it's like uh, kind of almost like a, I think of it almost like a sort of Bermuda triangle, like an inland Bermuda triangle where you get, you get uh, all of these unexplained murders that take place over the years. And I think it's kind of hit, it has emerged in the past, like especially around uh, early two thousands, there were, uh, there were uh, a spate of, uh, special forces and Delta force soldiers that killed their wives, like right after they came back from Afghanistan. So that made a lot of news about Fort Bragg in the eighties. There were some horrifying incidents, eighties and nineties. I think there were some horrifying incidents of like racial violence committed by soldiers here. And also, um, homophobic violence, uh, that was committed. Um, and, uh, some of the worst incidents in Fayetteville history dates around that time. There were some mass shootings, um, and then to go back even further in the seventies, there was a, one of the most famous murder cases in North Carolina history. It was special forces doctor who, um, who apparently murdered his whole family while he was high on amphetamines and then tried to blame it on like a hippie drug cult. And there were like three trials and no one could ever just, no one could ever figure out what had happened. Um, and it remains a very controversial case to this day, the Jeffrey McDonald case. So, um, that's all to say that, you know, this is not something knew this sort of uh this sort of underworld uh but certainly ever since 2020 it's emerged to the fore i think in a way that it hasn't in the past um and that all i think uh was uh start or kicked off by the the murder of uh of uh william levine and timothy dumas and i don't know if you want to get into that case now or, or get into some other ones there's a lot of them to talk about yeah well it was just in a in a sort of synopsis of that, of the, of the murder of those two guys. So Levine's, they found two bodies in the woods in December, 2020, both of them shot to death, white guy and a black guy laying side by side. Um, the, it was, the, there were no clues of the scene and to this day it remains unsolved, but it was clearly sort of, it, it had every appearance of being a sort of professional hit. Um, and then it emerged immediately. A couple of facts emerged right away. One, was that Levine was a Delta Force soldier who had done like 14 deployments. So literally one of the most skilled uh, gunfighters in the world, uh, by definition, like a guy that just, he, he would have been very hard. I was just talking to someone who knew him yesterday, his high school buddy. I was talking to him uh, yesterday. He grew up with him in Michigan. He said that even asleep, like you couldn't sneak up, sneak up on Billy when he was asleep. He would pop up. You know, he, he wasn't like a psychopath, according to his friend. Uh, in fact, we can go into it later, but Levine's was a bit different from other Delta Force guys. Um, but anyway, the, the point is that it, he would have been a very, very different, difficult person 
to uh, sneak up on and yet someone had taken him out, taken the other guy out to the other guy uh, was a uh, seriously bad dude in, in ex uh, seventh group, uh, former seventh special forces group soldier who um, was like a, a drug dealer, uh, a pimp, uh, a hitman, uh, and also I've been uh, the most recent thing I've learned is he had been he had committed a string of uh, like armed robberies where he had he had uh, robbed drug dealers. He's a stick up. He he ran a stick up crew uh, in his spare time with a state trooper named Freddie Wayne Huff. I'm talking about Timothy Dumas here, the former soldier, Chief Warrant Officer Timothy Dumas ran a stick up crew with a state trooper, North Carolina state trooper named Freddie Wayne Huff the second and his 18-year-old son, Freddie Wayne Huff III, they were kicking down the doors of trap houses and robbing drug dealers uh, right and left. Levine, too, had committed all sorts of crimes leading up to violent crimes leading up to his death. He had been arrested for at least five felonies over the, over the uh, preceding, um, I don't know, 18 months, including, same as Dumas, uh, aggravated assault with a deadly weapon, and yet all of these charges had disappeared for for both for both men. Like you can find the arrest records for both of them. You know, like five felonies in a row in Levine's case, and even more felonies in a row in Dumas's case. Yet both men died with clean cr- criminal records. Neither was ever prosecuted for any crime. Which had that that to this day, there's zero explanation for how in the hell that could possibly be. Um, but to top it off, Levine had previously killed a guy in his uh, house in Fayetteville in 2018, shot and killed another Green Beret named Mark Leshiker. Once again, in a case that there's no explanation for why that happened, the closest friends, the closest family members of these men can't say why or even speculate really why. Um, but what we do know is that Levine was not charged with a crime. He was just immediately released. Um, so when these two guys with this um, completely inexplicable history, histories behind them, you know, just up here, side by side, shot to death in the woods. You know, that 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 raised a lot of questions about what the hell's going on at Fort Bragg, just to say the least. And then, so finally, I guess you wrote this last, a more recent article in September uh, of 2022, if my memory is correct. And this was on dealt more with the overdoses and the Senate. Some senators like Liz Warren, maybe Ed Markey, maybe if I remember, but. Uh, they were looking into this, this, the, this kind of staggering amount of drug overdoses in recent years. Um, how is th- how how did how does this play into the the whole narrative of what's going on there? Uh, well, it's all drug related. I may not even mention that because it's like it's kind of like the ambient environment around here. I mean, in the case I was just talking about, Levine and Dumas. Levine was on every drug you can imagine. He had serious substance abuse issues. Uh, and was also um, buying and selling drugs. Uh, he was hooked up with the with the what folks around here call the cartel. You can go more into that um, about what exactly that means. Dumas as well, cocaine trafficker, uh, without a doubt. Uh, also a, a dealer, uh, and um, so you know whatever was going on with them, it was clearly uh, drug trafficking related. Uh, some of the other murders that. We haven't even broached. Probably we don't even have time to broach because there have been so many of them. Um, the one consistent uh, theme is that uh, they all, in one way or another, relate to drugs. Uh, so at the at the same time, I was also tracking, as I'm reporting on these drug-related murders, these fratricidal murders where you have special forces soldiers killing each other and trafficking drugs. Also tracking a large number 
of uh, fatalities of soldiers at Fort Bragg. Um, really unusual numbers, although it's, it's kind of hard to get apples to apples comparisons because the Army will not disclose uh, those numbers that would allow me to make uh, educated statements about just how extreme it is for, like, let's say, 109 soldiers to die at Fort Bragg in 2020, 2021, but I've not been able to find anything comparable at any other military base in modern times. Uh, to me, it seemed like an unprecedented wave of fatalities, and uh, it wasn't at all clear what was causing that, but you know, I did know that suicide was the biggest category. Uh, many suicides also hard to, to distinguish between drug overdoses, but uh, through FOIA, uh, spent, uh, I was able to obtain you know, documents that ultimately shed enough light on it to conclude that overdoses was a major category of these deaths, that probably the second leading ca uh, cause of death of War Bragg right behind suicide was uh, overdoses, in particular from fentanyl, so soldiers falling out from fentanyl ODs right and left around here. Um, and I think that, because uh, th this military suicide crisis is old news, sadly, uh, back when I was in the military a long time ago, it was still it was already a problem then. Um, but I think what's new is is all the overdoses. And that's something that hadn't emerged at all before. We know there's an overdose crisis in our general society. I believe that fentanyl is now the number one leading cause of death for adults, uh, period. Like American adults, period. That's the number one cause of death. Um, but it's like more than COVID, I think. And... Um, but it hadn't, it hadn't, uh, we didn't know yet that, you know, this had equally affected the military. And so, you know, that, that was the, the, the latest story that I wrote for, for Rolling Stone. And yeah, like you said, um, that was enough to get, you know, the attention of some senators. Senator Markey of uh, Massachusetts was the, uh, really the um, instigator of that. But, you know, the, I, as far as I'm aware, the Pentagon didn't even respond. Like he, Senator Markey asked him some very reasonable questions in his letter. Um, in particular, he wanted to know how many overdose deaths the military had seen since like 2017, um, because, you know, the reporting that I was able to do just showed it was kind of like a baseline minimum. Those are the ones I could say these are for sure overdoses, but there's reason to believe it might be way higher than um, what I reported due to a large number of casualties that are officially classified as undetermined, uh, and also the suicides I mentioned, uh, many of which uh, involve drugs. So. Um, I think it's really disturbing that the military is so contemptuous of Congress that they're just not even going to answer that question. Um, but it uh, is reflective of a power imbalance um, that has uh, really that that has that that dates back to to, to 9/11. I, I would say post 9/11, in which you know the the uh, few congressional um, guardrails uh, that did exist over the military, the congressional oversight of the military in general, greatly greatly attenuated these days, uh, which, is, which is very worrisome. Yeah, the Congress doesn't do much oversight of the military or the intelligence agencies. This is a recurring thing. As I've looked at this, and my my memory of some of these guys is not uh, the names I'm not going to be able, I'm not totally feeling like I have mastery over, but this Levine fellow, is. you said he killed his friend before he was later found dead. Is he the guy that had a tattoo of his friend's, got his friend's name tattooed on his chest or something like that after he killed him? Was that a part of the story? Yeah, yeah his tattoo said uh, ML, initials for Mark Lushiger, um, the date of his death, which was in March 2018, until Valhalla. Yeah, that, and that, the whole, that whole scene was just the way you describe it. It was done in front of his daughters uh, and... There was no, there was never any explanation as to what it was. It was just he was too strung out on drugs, and then 
had all these guns around and shot the guy or do you, what is there do you have a theory as to what even that was if there was another story there or? he killed the man right in front of his daughter and in front of his own daughter both of whom were about six years old um and no there's no i mean his official story to the police was uh not credible to say the least he said it was done in self-defense um but if you or i had told that story to the police with the facts and evidence as they were you know we would definitely have been charged with first degree murder levine wasn't even placed under arrest he just walked that same day because he's a member of delta force literally the most elite unit in the whole u.s military um does black ops that's all delta force does is black ops missions that are officially denied by the u.s government they'll either say it didn't happen or the u.s wasn't responsible for it or if it's acknowledged they won't say anything about the unit that was behind it um but that's delta you know we talk a lot about or we hear a lot about the seals and the seal teams six and how much they are always fucking up um but <laughs> my view is that the seals are just like the scapegoats because um, you know, the SEALs are not that important to, I, they, the SEALs are a big component of JSOC, Joint Special Operations Command, uh, and the Special Operations Command in general, SOCOM. So, uh, it's tedious, the organizational structure, but in general, uh, there's a very large, um, component of the military, which is the Special Operations Command, which is what's known as White SOF, S-O-F, Special Operations Forces, White, as in, um, like above board. Uh, and then there's a smaller component of that, which is known as BlackSoft, which is JSOF, which does the covert stuff. Uh, so that's SEAL Team 6, Delta Force, um, some other special mission units from the Air Force and the Army. But the SEALs in general, are there, although they're a big component of SOCOM and JSOC, um, they're, they're not nearly as important as the Army. Uh, the Army is much bigger force and has, uh, you know, is, is at the head of the table, so to speak. Um, and the Marines are not even part of this picture. The Marines are completely excluded um, from from JSOC uh, and from SOCOM. Um, or I'm not sure about SOCOM. Don't quote me on that. But they're excluded from the Black Soft stuff. So um, anyway, it's all just to say that the uh, I feel like all the stigma that attaches to Navy SEALs is kind of uh, a distraction. You'll find, or I found in my research that Whenever Delta guys are involved with something that's potentially embarrassing to the military, you'll see a little blip, uh, some weird news event, a police report that you can later get through FOIA, and then th then it just disappears and nothing is ever heard from it again. Uh, so they're really really good at covering their tracks, uh, and they really go to bat for their guys when they when they fuck up, um, and a lot of them do because you're talking about guys that you know they're enlisted operators. These are hitters. These are not necessarily sophisticated you know spies or whatever like you would see with the cia these guys are literally assassins for the government uh, president's personal hitmen you can think of delta force uh, as as a as a hit squad that answers directly to the president i mean that's literally what they do um so when a guy like that who's you know, he maybe have may have killed 100 people in his career um may have done 15 deployments people that have been through those life experiences can be volatile to say the least um, when they get back here and certainly they can fall foul of the law uh, and when that happens um, certain mechanisms go into action that prevent them from being uh, uh, an embarrassment to the organization and this is not done for the protection of the operator uh, who to the to the government are just totally disposable parts uh, it's done to protect the organization and i could give any number of examples you can, you just have, you'd have to stop me. I don't know how many you want me to go into or how many you have time for. Well, they, I mean, 
to my to my mind, this makes his death seem when you when I when I read about how he committed that murder and then was uh, just basically allowed to walk, with the most damning circumstances I can imagine. I mean, uh, to, uh, and then but then he was not charged with anything. That's astounding, and it, it, even from their perspective of needing to keep these kind of tools around you know and somebody like that might have its uses because he's a, an effective killer this would have been more than enough indication that this person was actually a, a problem and a, and a risk and then that to me brings to mind the possibility of like was his murder their way of dealing with someone who if he were to actually be go be put on trial or or anything else and have to talk about his PTSD or any of the things he was involved in, that could have been such a mess. I mean, has that is that something that you heard whispers of people at least suspecting that around the, this case or that he may have been killed by? I mean, not his- whispers, not whispers. That's what everyone thinks or says or speculates practically. And the closer they are to the unit and the closer they are to the case, and the more casually though people will assert that like oh yeah it was probably his teammates often like that's how they deal with problems um that being said um i have my doubts about well there's just other possibilities as well um because levine was really and truly off the rails uh he was totally rogue he was working for a cartel but what they call a cartel i kind of put in quotes or i hesitate to use the word cartel because i'm from texas i spent a lot of time in mexico South Texas, you talk about the cartel, you're talking about a very specific organization. Here in North Carolina, I've had cops, you know, other people talk about cartel this, cartel that. I'm wondering, what are they talking about? Well, they're basically just talking about, um, you know, the biggest drug dealers around this part of North Carolina, kind of a loose confederacy. It's not a specific organization. It's not, it's not um, specifically Mexican, although it is supplied by Mexicans. Um, but in particular, Levine, uh, was, uh, during, in 2019, around the time of his death, Levine was, uh, under investigation by army CID for trafficking drugs on Fort Bragg. That's a fact. So was Dumas, uh, actively under investigation for trafficking drugs. Um, Levine kept company during that time with, um, at least three, and we could even say four known drug traffickers. They were. Britton Ray Whittington, uh, allegedly, because uh, uh, I'm not sure if he's been convicted. Timothy Bird, allegedly, he's awaiting trial in federal court um, right now. And uh, uh, Robert Lee Anderson, allegedly, uh, also awaiting federal prosecution. And finally, uh, his girlfriend at the time, um, whose name I won't say, I think she might be a protected witness, but she was indicted for drug trafficking. Uh, and she was also um, convicted. So these four people I just named, they were for certain uh, right in Levine's immediate click in 2019, in the year that he died. And the charges against him in federal court, because they were all indicted shortly after his death, I put a pin in that, I'll return to that point. But they were all indicted shortly after his death um, and are now all in federal custody, all four of those people, except for Whittington is in state custody. So. Um, and these were not small time drug dealers. These were, uh, you know, in, in, at least in the case of Bird uh, and Anderson, you're talking about um, shot callers who have done federal time already in the past. The charges against them um, now, uh, you know, talking about like 70 plus 
trafficking uh, charges plus firearms charges plus conspiracy money laundering, all the rest. So they're not talking about small-time drug dealers at all. Those were Levine's closest associates. He was working as an enforcer uh, for uh, this kind of clique. Uh, by the way, there's other people involved in this that haven't been named, uh, whose names I don't even know, but I hear from law enforcement that, from some certain law enforcement sources that, that I haven't even I managed to identify the even bigger fish that Levine was with. But um, in any event, um, those people that I that I was just named are more than capable, allegedly, well, how can I phrase this without committing libel? Um, these are, let me just say, in general, people that are, that are drafting drugs on that level uh, can be very dangerous um, and are certainly capable of committing murder. So, but all of which, and to conclude, I'll wrap this up by saying that uh, when I see that those three were indicted in, by the feds right after Levine was killed, you know, well, let me put it this way. I emailed the um, public affairs officer for the U.S. District Court for the Eastern District of North Carolina, where these people are being processed, and asked them if Levine was considered a co-conspirator um, or if the grand jury considered, um, you know, Levine's conduct in connection with um, handing down these indictments and uh, they refused to answer that question. But, you know, obviously you can see what I'm getting at. I was wondering if these people are all getting about to go down um, and Levine's about to go down too. And there's a grand jury indictment with his name on it floating around in federal court. I just kind of wonder if that document could have found its way to, um, you know, uh, to a special operations command and they might've known, Hey, one of your boys is about to be indicted and these really serious federal drug trafficking charges. And I, I wonder, you know, what, uh, what uh, might have been set in motion by um, that knowledge, if it, if it in fact happened. I mean, but there's so many, the, between the, the people who were running this bigger drug operation and the Special Forces Command, there would be so many people that would find Levine's continued existence very inconvenient and then of course there's uh the mark lustiger the man he killed um in 2018 was not punished for so there's a third possibility that um you know maybe mark's teammates didn't like that very much that might not have sat right with them at all there's a lot of resentment uh believe it or not towards delta force within the larger special operations community or there can be um as there typically will be to if there's one unit that's super elite that has all the privileges and all the special perks and does its own thing and doesn't answer to anybody else, you know, just so there, there was, it might've been some tension there between third group, uh, and, uh, Delta, but it's uh, once more and more speculation. brings to my mind like you know as an american i can only think in terms of hollywood movies and so it makes me think of platoon and uh the charlie sheen character who has to deal with tom berenger at the end of the movie i mean it's like what what in these sort of lawless situations and in this this milieu and sort of lawless universe uh, you know i mean these kind of crazy choices or, or things can happen and you know it could be as you say, there's so be people would have had a lot of motive to kill this guy, and um, and it's it's hard to it's hard to be very sad for him going out that way. But the whole story is just seems horrific. Now, recently Jack Murphy wrote about 
um, some other aspects of this and of this case. And he wrote about how, uh, and he's a for an army guy himself, an ex army guy, is at, right? And you are, you are as well, right? Are you ex military? Yes, but Jack was a Green Beret, and okay. I was never in Special Forces. Okay. Um, and there's this quote here that I, that people it went around, uh, and it's just amazing to me. Uh, the quote was, "This is what happens when there's no war, no direction, and an 18 month red cycle with no mission." A Special Forces said, "So dudes are fucking around with young kids and the craziest drugs. All these lives ruined because people are just bored." Um, what there's a, there's a, some, there's a bit to unpack there. I mean, what is this guy getting, how is this the mentality of these, uh, of some of these people that the, that they need, that they feel somehow that because there's, they don't have this action that they're going to get into this sort of, uh, you know, murder and mayhem on their own time and, and drug bacchanalia and all this, or, I mean, is this, is this indicative of one guy being kind of a nutter or is this kind of a mentality that exists in, in a segment of these, of these people. Yeah, I think it's possible. Don't, uh, underestimate the power of boredom to be a motivator, I guess. And in events, uh, I, I was staying, I'm staying right now. I'm in Fayetteville right now at, uh, at a sort of, uh, bed and breakfast and the, the, the ladies who serve dinner, they're all, you know, they have military families and stuff, military husbands, and military spouses, kids in the military. And they were saying that, you know, we were talking about this stuff, um, and all the, all the, all the crime stories that take place around here. And they were saying just that, you know, it's because there's nothing to do. That's what they said. There's nothing to do around here. Nothing. Um, and Fort Bragg is a overwhelmingly male army base because it's all infantry and, um, you know, special forces is even more overwhelmingly male than the, than the army infantry. So, um, you're talking like 99% male. Um, and so, that huge population of young men who are amped up, super aggressive, you know, army training instills aggression in people um, by design. Um, and, you know, there's just not much to do. And yeah, it's totally possible that acting out that way. I've, I've interviewed guys who were convicted Green Berets, who convicted for trafficking drugs, who say, I didn't do it for the money. I just wanted to do something for the challenge. Like it was a challenge. It was fun, for lack of a better word. So I think that could be a big part of it. You know, keep in mind what a rural, relatively rural uh, part of the country this is. So, yeah, I mean, it's uh, I've been bored before myself uh, at certain stretches of my life, but there's that's not my go-to thing. Is you know mayhem and and so on. But uh, it's. Do you think that some of this has to do with the way? that the i mean i i am kind of a preoccupied with the us imperialism and this whole project of which jsoc is just one little cog in it and i've spent a whole lot of time trying to study it years of my life trying to study what is this system that the us creates and so on this thinking about it in historical terms and sort of geopolitical terms and so on but these guys that are just a part of this uh, on this level they, they they wouldn't possibly have the time to really uh, you know be a, just be detached from this and look at it from the, from that that sort of different perspective um do you think that some of that that this may be reflective of just what i what what i would call the 
moral depravity of this whole project of, of, of what that the military is engaged in. I mean, I, I've heard you say and others say that the war on drugs, you know, Peter Del Scott has written about this. The war on drugs replaces the Cold War in some ways. And so as these guys get sent in operations that are sort of related to this, sometimes related to this war on drugs business, but they have to be, but there's all, it's known that, that the gov, the state often works with drug traffickers in some ways. So it, ha- and you hear things like, I know a guy who's retired special forces and his wife is very conservative, but he'll just admit, yeah, it's all about money. I mean, is, is this deep cynicism? I mean, is it just filtering down among, to the, to these people on the ground? And it's, it is it like fueling some kind of nihilism that is, that, that we see expressing itself in these kind of ways or, I mean, this may be a deeper question, but I'm just trying to wrap my mind around what is going on in this milieu. And it doesn't seem like a coordinated, you know, intelligence sort of deep state thing. It seems like, like actually some kind of blowback, which is not it, it but, but a weird, like psychological uh, type of, of, of blowback in, in, on these, with these people. Does that make any sense or, or what do you, yeah, it does. Uh, you raise a lot of interesting points there. Um, and um, there's lots of things I could say in response. One point I could make is that, you know, as the moral authority, or not the moral authority, but sort of moral consensus around U.S. wars, I mean, I served in Iraq, and that's when it sort of broke apart in my life at around 2007, 2008, when you saw a widespread disillusionment with the Iraq war. So many people, especially conservatives, I think, we don't talk enough about the psychology of conservatives having been duped into the Iraq war because you know, I was against the Iraq war. I was just an army reservist in college, totally against the Iraq war, but had to serve anyway because I was deployed. I remember arguing with all these folks at that time. Um, and uh, it, because I grew up in that, in a very, very conservative, uh, very conservative milieu. Um, and, um, None of them ever like apologized. Of course, no, people didn't just admit. All the people that voted for Bush twice never admitted like, "Oh yeah, we were wrong. We got duped." And yet, on some level, they know that they did. Um, and I think that really uh, began to fester in their minds the, the knowledge, whether they consciously admitted to themselves or not, that all this uh, patriotic jingoistic fervor for doing the Iraq War. It was all a lie and they were all manipulated and lied to and treated like idiots by their government um, and their dupes. And that, that makes people cynical. Um, and that makes people, I don't know if nihilistic is the right word, but it are definitely moving in the direction of nihilism. Um, and, um, you know, that, that feeds off into the Trump phenomenon, which I don't want to get into, but I will say that with respect to the military itself and who joins the military, what kind of people, um, uh, are attracted to the service, you know, it's going to be more of the mercenary type when there's no, um, when nobody believes in the wars, like nobody believes in the war in Afghanistan, no one believes in the war in Iraq. Um, th- these were pre- uh, predicated on lies and then uh, resulted in failure. So I think that that is a big, big uh, part of, uh, or a big driver in this sort of spike in military crime that we've seen. Uh, post 2016, I think especially, um, and very quite concentrated. The criminality in elite units that we've seen since 2016 is really marked, uh, really distinctive, um, and um, 
I think that that uh, loss of faith in, 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 in the patriotic uh, rectitude of, of um, uh, military engagements overseas uh, has a big, big role to play in that. Yeah, I, I mean, what, I think when I was younger, at certain points, uh, I had a, you know, a, a more of a sneering kind of generic young leftist contempt for the military and for conservatives, just for middle of mainline American conservatives and so on. But then the more that I would look into the, trying to understand the social forces that create uh, this sort of thinking in, in large parts of the population. And I'm a little more detached about it. And I, I, you know, I even did political campaign jobs where I'd be canvassing and you'd end up talking to sort of conservative people. And like on a personal level, even conservative right-wing people, I mean, some of them are real bastards in general, but, but a lot of them are just are nicer people who just have a different cosmology of the world and so on than me. And there is this realization that the actual reality of what the U.S. is doing and, and, and the military as a, as a part of this, a weaponized part of it, is actually beyond the, it doesn't conform to the morality of any of these people. And that's why they have to, that's why they have to lie all the time about what they're doing and why they're doing it. And, and this can work for people who get information from television and they don't necessarily, and, the internet and whatever, but like for the, the, these soldiers are actually there in a way that they can't deny. I think they can't deny it on some level. Like they have, they've seen it, whether they have the way to process it or not, they've seen this darkness that is so studiously kept from everyone else. And to me that I, I, that's that to me, I think has to be a a, a big factor in, in all of this, because some of these stories and, and that you recount and some of them, we didn't even mention the one of a guy, this rather nice guy who just goes out and gets decapitated uh, by his, his friends who report him missing and say, Oh, he was, you know, he's a little suicidal ish, I guess, but we don't know what happened to him. Maybe you can find him. And then they find his head later. Right. I mean, so like, but, but this is one more grisly episode. This, this seems to me, I I feel like you can't uh, disentangle this from the higher immorality that guides what they're doing overseas and such. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. Um, and certainly what the U.S. does overseas is extraordinarily immoral, to say the absolute least. Um, and I think that there's plenty of people capable of just, well, you go in two different directions. I could go in the direction of, you know, agreeing with, with what you're say, saying about, like, how this historically came about. Because you see, like, I never had, I hear what you're saying, I never had the luxury of hating conservatives because I grew up in that in that environment. Um, and, um, when, uh, when I went and I never had the, I never looked at the military in that same way, like that sort of reflexive, uh, that, that's just not how I grew up. I, I went to a public school in Texas, a relatively rural setting. I thought the army was cool. I thought, you know, I, I, I burned with a desire to become army rangers, special forces, do all that stuff. Um, and it was really when I got to Iraq, um, Although, you know, even before I got there, like for some, for whatever reason, I don't know what it was. You know, I didn't have access to any better information than anyone else, but it just seemed obvious that the, that the Iraq war was coming after 9-11 then suddenly shift gears and talk about Iraq this and Iraq that. I had just enough critical thinking to skills to look at that and say, wait a minute, this is bullshit. 
Um, and then being over there and having guys in my unit killed, seeing people killed, um, uh, other things that happened, um, really, really soured me on all of this. Uh, and, um, and I, I can only imagine that that, that has, uh, well, I know for a fact that that's, that's greatly influenced a whole generation of veterans. And, you know, the, the majority of veterans, I think like three quarters of veterans say that the war in Afghanistan was a mistake or the war in Iraq was a mistake. And then more than half say the same thing about Afghanistan. And I, over time, those numbers will only go up. So, um, but that's not to say that the, the military can't continue to just, uh, you know, uh, to, to, uh, re, to, to, uh, reconstitute itself, to reproduce itself, um, with volunteers who were doing it for purely mercenary causes and understand, uh, that they're doing this for a mercenary cause. And also I think that there's something, this is very discouraging to, for me to see. Um, but I think that there's a kind of sea change, a psychological sea change in the United States where we just accept that the U S is going to be permanently at war. Uh, and it's always going to be have a half dozen wars going on at any given time and that they'll mostly be covert, that, that no one's ever going to vote on them, that we're not going to talk about them and that the mainstream media is not going to report on them. It's just going to be there's this kind of this uh, baseline understanding that um, the U.S. constantly has special operations forces deployed in, in weird, deep, dark corners of the world, Yemen, Somalia, Libya. Uh, Mali, what have you, the Philippines, it's the, Pakistan, the list just goes on and on. Ukraine, of course. Um, it wasn't there. So wasn't there I, a quote from one of the special forces guys? I, I, I would get, and this is years ago, but you might remember this because I, it's kind of, it's in your wheelhouse, or you, it might be too obscure. But there was a guy who was a special forces dude, and he was interviewed, and he said it may have been like maybe Nick Terse's work or something, and he said something to the effect of, "We are the dark matter that keeps that orders the universe." something to that effect. And I thought that's more true than he realizes, but does he get the significance of it? I don't even know, but it, have you ever heard that? Have you ever come across that quote? Not that quote, but I can imagine just what you're, you're saying. And that's what I'm talking about. Why it's so discouraging. This, what I described as a psychological sea change where people just accept that that's the natural order of the, of the, of the political, of the global political uh, establishment that, that we just have this secret, basically the global secret police. Um, the irony of course is that all of this, it's, it, 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 it's not to protect world stability at all. It does the exact opposite. It's totally pathological, even from considering within the interests of the system itself, we have a system that, um, you know, is self-defeating because, um, it can only pursue more and more military profits. Like the, the way that the military industrial complex were, it's just like the sort of financialization of, uh, corporate America. Like that actually greatly weakened the U.S. industry to have all this offshoring and to have everything owned by hedge funds, et cetera. Um, but the profit uh, imperative dictated that that happened when, because it was the the the, the profit motive came, was uh, prioritized over um, things like um, the strength of our national economy um, and social cohesion, all the other goods that you can imagine that an economy would produce. Um, we're subordinated to the pure short-term profit uh, of, of neoliberalism. And you can see the same thing with the military industrial complex, pushing for constantly pushing for greater and more and expanded conflicts um, actually ends up greatly weakening the, the ability of the United States to sustain uh, and perpetuate uh, precisely that, that those uh, defense industrial base um, because of, uh, you know, the, 
because of geopolitical instability, um, because of um, you know the the loss of social cohesion in, in the United States, um, because of the loss of discipline on the on military industries where they don't have to even produce good products, and it's a very complex thing to analyze. I mean, we're talking about enormous um, talking about enormous swaths of our culture and country uh, and industry, but the proof is in the pudding, so to speak, like our military, I have, I don't think people have any idea how degraded and uh, fucked up for lack of a better word, the military is. I, I mean, I think we would struggle to, uh, it's, it's just dysfunctional. I think we would really struggle to, the, the readiness is the byword that the military leaders always use. I think we would struggle to deploy a battalion, or excuse me, a division to Europe right now or to anywhere in the world right now. I just don't know if it could happen. Um, the the suicide thing is off the charts. Um, the drug overdoses really discouraging. The technology doesn't work. Um, the 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 naval ships that cost God knows how many billions of dollars just circling the oceans, crashing into each other, catching on fire. The F thirty five doesn't work, and now they're doing a, a, a replacement for the F thirty five, which is going to be even more expensive. And there's no reason to think it will work either. So this is just all pure dysfunction. Um, that actually defeats the interests of the military industrial complex itself, if that makes sense. Um, but sorry, I lost track of your original no, it's question. A, it, 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 it's a deep, it, it goes even broader than that. I, I think that you're right that the military is dysfunctional and that it's kind of reflective of a bigger societal dysfunction. And to relate it to these economic issues, I think is important. Uh, it's it's I, I think that it stems from in the, you know, at the end of, during World War II, the U.S. decided it would go for global dominance, and it, that's what it geared itself to be able to do. And it it totally meet, like uh, transformed what what there was of American democracy uh, into a regime to manage an empire, but in such a way that you're not ever saying that it's an empire. So you have the instead you define it by its in, its supposed enemy of communism. And that allows you to basically wage war on the rest of the world, you know, places like Indonesia, Congo, Brazil, all these places where these, this Cold War chicanery happens. And it reproduces more or less the same arrangements of colonialism. But you can always say it's the Cold War, it's the Cold War. And it creates this, it, it, but it was fueled by these, this class of super rich Wall Street people. And they, they, they planned it all out in documents and so on. I mean, people say that like, Oh, we're not we're not like the Soviets. They have central planning. Well, we we have central planning over not over small things, but over like deciding to basically try to rule the world. And it's just that the central planning is done by people who are oligarchs, you, you would say. And this is just as over time, uh, it, it's created different choices they've made about the U.S. And I think part of it is keeping this the society itself insecure and kind of precarious because they can't politically mobilize in that way. I think they were scared of what happened in the sixties. And they basically said in the seventies and eighties that like, it's, there's going to, we're going to forget all that uh, new deal, great society stuff. It's going to be every, every man for himself. And that that'll actually be helpful for us because people can't really mobilize politically if they're not able to afford housing and quit their jobs or they don't have medical insurance unless they work for us like all these things but the result is that it's a we're deeply dysfunctional and the the so the military it's like Fort Bragg is the is a canary in the coal mine in a way if we look at it honestly 
Like they just have these guys that are out there running around being like, I'm going to make a buck and shoot up this. I'm going to go shoot up a crack house and shake them down for some money. And then I will set up this, these crack houses or whatever they're doing. Like they're not so different from the mentality of the people who actually are in the highest positions in the U S I mean, it's, this is, it's, is really something. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's um, a fair analogy to draw um, between the guy robbing crack houses dressed as a federal marshal um, and some of the political operators that we see in our system um, these days. But, you know, I don't doubt uh, at all what you're saying about the central planning sort of wall street ghouls that took over the, uh, uh, over the national security complex once we decided to have a standing army after World War II, um, and the the value or the the uh, actual function of the Cold War paradigm for as long as it existed, um, being just what you say. I mean, and uh, you know, you I think you mentioned at the when we first started recording that that for a while there they tr- sort of trotted out the um, the drug war as the replacement because after 1991 there is no cold war so what are you going to do to continue having increased military spending because this beast this uh this military economy that was created post uh, 1945 it's like a shark swimming in the water like it I, the military spending has to go up every single year or else it will um start to degenerate because keep in mind um we're not talking about real economic growth here we're not talking about real innovation it's just it's artificial subsidy spending that's plowed through the military industrial complex through massively overpriced goods and services. So you, the only way to keep generate because you, you can't you can't um, increase demand by having better products and so forth. Like it, it, it's only going to keep working if you if you keep putting more and more profits into it, just pumping more money into it. So there always has to be some permanent war paradigm for this to continue going forward. Uh, and you know that was a real problem after 1991 and the Soviet Union collapsed. Well, what's our what's our permanent war paradigm now? And for a while, like you said, it was the war on drugs, and that turned out to be kind of weak sauce. You know, my personal view of why the war on drugs never really took off is because um, Latin Americans are too recognizably human to uh, to uh, U.S. citizens, like average people in the United States heartland. Um, will not bat an eyelash seeing bombs drop on Baghdad and Arabs getting killed uh, or to take it back further to South Viet- to, to Vietnam. Um, I don't think you could drop bombs on, you know, Mexico or drop bombs on Colombia. Although there, of course there's, of course that's not to deny the U S has rained fire and blood on Latin America. I mean, we sacked, we certain. sacked Mexico city back in 1846. Right. So, but yeah, I, I agree. I do agree that there has been a, uh, they've been reluctant to do full-on military. I mean, even JFK backed away from the Bay of Pigs, uh, although Eisenhower and Nixon probably would have done it, but still. <laughs> uh, yeah, Eisenhower. Yeah. Well, not to get distracted on that, you know, the greater point that I was hoping to make is that, um, so when the glo- when 9-11 happened, now there's a, there is a paradigm that, ha- that's, that has legs, you know, and they were able to um, get 20 years of... Uh, military spending out of that that dwarfed all military spending that had ever come before. Um, and all the people that were behind that um, push to create the global war on terrorism uh, and perpetuate the global war on terrorism succeeded beyond their wildest imaginations. Um, they totally transformed the U.S. government into um, 
a far less democratic system than it had been before already. Democracy highly attenuated, but there's certainly significantly less of it than there used to be. That was a big success from their part. So militarization of security forces is another big success. Mass surveillance, um, you know, these are all the things that these authoritarian, um, the, 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 our authoritarian ruling class um, just can't wait to do, uh, or just couldn't wait to do, and um, was waiting uh, with those bills that need to be passed. Anyway. You know, we don't they, even they, know. We don't even know exactly what emergency powers are still in effect from 9-11. There's a, a, a Congress every year, or the president every year re-ups this state of emergency after that was that was created after 9-11 and congress people aren't even allowed to know what that state of emergency entails so we don't even know what rights the the state has actually assumed uh since 9-11 and they do it every year since then even though you know in the t- 2010s we start funding uh, uh, al-qaeda in syria but it doesn't matter we're still going to keep this emergency dictatorship sort of mini uh Fear principle for the national security state in effect that was after 9-11. It's, it's astounding. It is astounding. Um, and, you know, to quote Leonard Cohen, everybody knows, you know, it's just, I feel, I feel like we all sort of recognize and see, uh, I don't know how old you are, but I was, uh, let's see, when 9-11 happened, I was 17. And so uh, to me, you know, I had this sort of reaction against all this stuff, against the Patriot Act, et cetera. And I thought, and thought it would be a temporary aberration. Um, and now I don't. I feel like that sentiment has gone out the window. Like people just accept that. Oh yeah, there's our government is just, just this massive secret security force that is totally impenetrable and is outside of democratic control. But you know, anyway, to not, not to get too hung up on that. You know, the point that I wanted to make uh, to sort of tie it all together was that the global war on terrorism is now over. Uh, you pointed out that we now fund Al Qaeda in Syria, Operation Timber, Sycamore. I think most expensive CIA program in history. Um, it, but it, it's over as of like, let's say 2021 with the withdrawal from Afghanistan and the new, so what's the new, what's the new permanent war paradigm? Cause as I said, the U S must be at war. Our political system will cease to function the day we are not at war. Um, and the new paradigm is now Russia and China and putting aside the war in Ukraine. Um, we can talk about that if you like. But in general, the idea that the U.S. is now uh, going to be opposed to Russia and China, to me, strikes me as extremely weak. Like that's that's a very um, that doesn't sell that doesn't sell nearly as well as the as the global war on terrorism. It seems derivative. It seems stale. It's not going to attract. It's not. It's not going to. Uh, it's not going to attract cohesion around it. Like you know the sort of jingoistic sentiment. You just won't find it. You, there, you, you, every time you turn on the news or listen to what Congress is saying or Fox News, what have you, or, or MSNBC, the liberal side too, they're constantly trying to whip up, uh, you know, fear of the China threat, you know, and it's just weak as hell in my view. It's just not nearly as good uh, from a production Hollywood standpoint as the global war on terrorism, which was so good at, 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 uh, at fomenting military spending. Um, and um, it, it, and getting people to consent to the, to this, but, and I just don't think it's it's going to have nearly the sticking power or staying power. I'd be curious to hear what you think. Like, how is this going to really work? The, you know, both political parties agitating for war with China. I just don't see it happening. No, there's where does it go except for nuclear doomsday? And uh, you, you can 
that if if the war actually happens and it's it's how do you even justify it even like they're talking about so much about taiwan but taiwan is considered a is a part of china and i don't think the chinese really want there to be all this tension they don't want to invade taiwan uh, they would be happy just to let things play out as they have been and eventually taiwan would would be would just unify peacefully i think that's really what they're thinking is for good reason but the U.S. can't have the U.S. doesn't want things to play out. That's why I think they blow up the Nord Stream pipeline. They try to use Ukraine to to, to wep, they weaponize Ukraine against Russia and and China, because those two those countries have the material and technological wherewithal to eventually uh, provide an alternative to other parts of the you know not U.S. the for, the global South to offer them uh, resources and to basically attract capital and trade flows so that they're not going across the Pacific and the Atlantic to the United States as the center of gravity, but more as an alternative to that. And the U.S. The US has been, as you destabilizing everything around the world is their version of, of stability. Like they, the chaos is kind of what they need because there's no other game in town besides, you know, the U.S. dollar, the IMF and so on. And then it makes it very favorable for them to get whatever resources and buy up whatever they want around the world. But this Russia-China combination represents a real potential uh, counterweight to this. And so they're freaking out about it. But they're freaking out about it, I think, is necessitating their actual downfall because it's uh, it, 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 they can't fight these countries because we all die if they do. And so they need to bow to reality and, and accept some sort of system in the world that would be that you could defend on its merits rather than just America says so. And if you try to go against it, we'll kill you. Like they need to, we need to create a system that, that is rational and reasonably just and not this monstrosity, but the people that rule the world enjoy ruling the world and they don't, they, they don't want to move in that direction. And so are they going to get us all blown up, uh, you know, to hold on to this or, is there going to be some kind of reform? They don't benefit from blowing everything up, but they have a lot to lose. Like they at least have a, they have a motive for this that we should be worried about for this kind of brinksmanship. So I do, I feel like what you said, what you're saying is absolutely right. This, the new, the post global war on terror uh, business is not very compelling. The global war on terror had a, a very spectacular premiere that was on all the networks and, and and got hot, very high ratings. You know, nine eleven was a very spectacular event that that launched this new direction for world history's richest and most powerful empire. But but it fizzled out because of that. You know, Iraq and Afghanistan. Obama tries to keep it going with these Arab Spring wars, but they they flounder as well. Um, and here we, and, and now we're really getting at the heart of it, which is Russia and China. And if you go back and read Brzezinski. He's talking about this already as in the late in the 90s, as our main worry would be a coalition of Russia, China and Iran bound by grievances against the U.S. This is the main thing we have to worry about. That was probably the rationale for the global war on terror uh, and for the Arab Spring Wars and so on. But now that those have failed, it's really getting right to it. It's getting right to what was always the big issue, Russia and China, these two giant societies with great resources and human potential at their disposal uh, to be a countervailing weight to Western imperialism, which has existed for hundreds of years. The U.S. has been managing it since World War II, but this whole system is centuries long, and now it's coming down to it where I think we're at a point where we keep going, pushing this way, and 
we you could get nuclear war, but I don't see how it can be turned into a conflict that goes on in perpetuity for decades or whatever that allows the U.S. to maintain an empire because of this this war this uh, war paradigm that it's ginned up. I just, I don't see how it can continue this way. I think something has got to change, but I don't know how that's going to unfold. Well, I certainly agree with you that the the uh, idea of war with China is terrifying, um, but I'm hopeful in a way that. Uh, the U.S. will fail to provoke China into uh, participating because, you know, yeah. it t- kind of takes two to tango, uh, especially if you're declaring that the Chinese state is your enemy. You, you, you know, you never see, and that's why I kind of think that Ukraine is a bit of a distraction because um, to this broader um, trend uh, that I foresee, uh, could be wrong, but uh, yeah, because, you know, Russia is a weak country, uh, a weak and humiliated country uh, with real insecurity around the regime, the Putin regime, um, and uh, real, has real existential concerns about its continued existence. And uh, so for that, for that reason, it's pretty easy to do what they did uh, around Ukraine, um, which is to you know, pr- provoke, constantly provoke Russia and deliberately push them uh, through, through NATO expansion. Um, knowingly uh uh pushing all of their um buttons so to speak um and you know when when they say that but by having all these countries join nato and surrounding russia with a hostile military alliance and constantly signaling that you're considering a regime change in in moscow and that you're gonna make ukraine a part of nato etc Zelensky um, was talking about getting nukes like a week before this special military operation started he, he mentioned that well well, there's, I mean, On top there's different of other things, so I'm just echoing what you're saying that that there was there, there were some reasons for them to be uh, concerned, shall we say? I, there's different audiences here. I mean, to the American public, what the mass media is going to say is that this is a surprise shock invasion done by the evil Russians because they hate freedom uh, and they see that Ukrainians enjoying democracy, and because of the, the wickedness in their heart uh, and, and their inscrutable. Uh, Russian evil uh, just determined to stamp out democracy wherever it springs up. You know, that kind of thing. You can uh, just just push out that line, just sort of dominate the, the media with the spectacular imagery, et cetera. But uh, pretty much everyone that, that um, any sort of diplomatic uh, professionals, they, everyone's perfectly aware that this has been going on since 1999, the steady march of NATO towards, uh, towards Russia. I mean, these are these diplomatic summits when they occur, the transcripts are written down. I mean, you can see Russians and uh, American diplomats having conversations where the Russians are saying, you know, you told us you weren't going to expand NATO in 1999. Now you've expanded NATO to these 14 different countries. Why are you doing this? You're scaring us. Please stop. And then a few years will go by and they'll say, okay, okay, we accept uh, that these dozen countries are going to join NATO, but you must not do this to Ukraine. You must not do this to Georgia. Those are our vital security interests around the Black Sea. We're going to treat that effectively as an act of war. You must not do this in Ukraine. And for the Americans just, of course, uh, continue doing it. Uh, for exactly that reason. For exactly, in, in, for exactly that reason, that reason. of course. This, is, they, this can't be right, emphasized because, enough that, like, it's not right. that they were doing these things to support some democracy here and there. And it just happened to be in Ukraine, which was very sensitive to the Russians. It's that they did it specifically because they knew that it was very damaging to Russian security. Uh, I, this is right. and important. Th- that, that, that's my view. And, you know, there's that telegram that, or that, oh, what is it, uh, that cable that's uh, often held up by, uh, what is his name, William C- 
Colby. Who's the Burns. director of the CIA? Burns. Burns, sorry, yeah. Uh, Burns, uh, you know, where he's saying, he basically says that in writing, that uh, the Russian point of view is that um, expansion of NATO to Ukraine will be uh, uh, treated basically as an act of war. And people hold that up as, a, as a indicating that Burns is some kind of like crypto liberal or something. But I always read that cable as just like, him saying, like, here's what we do in order to start a war in Ukraine. This is, this is our playbook. Um, and but So my point is just that you can do that with Russia. Like, Russia can be goaded into war. Because on the eve of the war, of course, the Russians um, made an offer that said that if, in exchange for Ukrainian neutrality, they would not uh, invade Ukraine. The U.S., of course, didn't deign to respond to that at all. So the Russians said, all right, it's war. Um because for what the reasons I was saying, their weakness as a state, their insecurity as a regime, um, makes them really think that war is preferable to having NATO in Ukraine. Like between those two options, like the Russians do not want to go to war. Yes, they're an autocratic regime. Yes, they're a corrupt regime. Russia, I would never want to live in Russia. Um, I have no admiration at all for, for Vladimir Putin or his murderous security forces at all. But I recognize that they're rational. Um, I think that they're uh, human beings who are guided by um, if primarily their own self-interest and then secondarily for the interests of their nation, Russia. And I think that for, in their view, they look at Ukraine and think that it's preferable, although they don't want to have 100,000 soldiers die in Ukraine. They don't want to have all the sanctions even worse. Um, but they would rather have that than have, U- have U- Ukraine be turned into a, uh, a NATO satellite. Um, so, and that's because they're weak and, and on the defensive and insecure. Whereas China is not like China, uh, China's foreign policy for so long has been simply to avoid war. Uh, and the Chinese, I don't know much about their internal politics, but I know about their foreign policy. And I know that they look at the United States and, um, see a country that's destroying itself by, by constantly, um, going to war and the Chinese are determined to avoid that. And yes, Taiwan is important to them. Um, you know, Taiwan is part of China, Taiwan. Uh, that's why they speak Chinese there. That's why it's right next to China. That's why all the people there are Han Chinese. Um, it's just preposterous that the way the U S asserts this, this claim over time over Taiwan as if like we have any right at all to say, like what these two uh, closely, closely related polities should uh, do, uh, how they should relate to one another. It's clearly none of our business. Um, or I should put to put it another way, Taiwan obviously is much more important to China than it is to the U.S. or ought to be to the U.S. But even then, even with U.S. putting special forces in Taiwan, because we do, uh, you know, having all this sort of democracy promoting NGOs, quote unquote, uh, over there. Uh, even with all of that provocation, even with freaking Nancy Pelosi flying to Taiwan to specifically stick her stick a, 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 a stick in the eye uh, of the Chinese Communist Party over over the issue of Taiwan, massively provocative and really just sort of unprecedented warmongering uh, by this batty old lady uh, who just works directly for the sort of military industrial uh, financial complex. Even that, I think, is was not enough to get the Chinese to really speak out or say anything. I mean, I don't recall hearing a single Chinese leader say anything about that. Uh, that outrageously provocative and counterproductive um, and aggressive and arrogant move that, that Pelosi made. Like, even in response to that, like, I don't remember the Chinese saying anything. I can't remember ever seeing a clip of a Chinese leader 
talking about the United States in a negative way. They just keep our name out of their mouth, so to speak, because they're determined to avoid war. They understand the the sort of um, uh, incentive structure that we're talking about earlier. They understand that the U.S. is um, is uh, dysfunctional, that our political system dysfunctionally pursues war, and that we'll pursue irrational wars, even world-destroying wars. Uh, they understand why that is, and they're determined to avoid uh, that very conflict. So for that reason, I'm, I'm hopeful that this permanent war paradigm kind of like sputters out. I don't know who's next in line like to be the, the arch enemy of the United States empire. Do you, do you have any ideas? I think that the this whole project is, is it has to wind down over the next decade, uh, and there needs to be some kind of realignment of uh, and restructuring of our whole posture towards the world. Uh, I don't see an alternative to it because I I, th- I believe that the rest of the world that has been kept down by this sort of economic system that's specifically designed to keep them perpetually underdeveloped and poor and desperate, um, that this is uh, untenable and that somebody came along, I think China, that this Chinese-led but Russian with Russian military muscle as well, like that sort of combination that they have in Russian resources and Russian society is going to get, is going to be stronger. I think in, in overcoming decades compared to its low, its lows in the nineties that they're going to eventually rebuild much of, of what they, they lost over time. And, uh, that this, the U S decision to try to rule the world is just generating its own opposition. And as countries have an alternative, they will start to take it, and then the the dollar. I'm hoping that this is a process that is slow, in such a, or a gradual, such that it can be responded to in a way that'll avoid massive calamity here in the U.S. But I don't think that there's, I don't think that there's going they're going to be able to pull this off. But I don't know what how exactly that's going to unfold. I just don't see the, how their the logic that they have and the tools that they have at their disposal are going to allow them to maintain this to pull another rabbit out of their hat. In the 70s, everything collapsed. The, the world order, uh, the financial order collapsed because of the Vietnam War spending and so on. But the U.S. had so much control over global oil and the, the currency system that they were able to basically finagle it so that the dollar just replaced gold. And so the U.S. really came out of the 1960s uh, as a big winner. They think they, People think we lost Vietnam, but on the whole basically taking control of Indonesia and all of its massive resources really was as much wealth or more than what was spent on Vietnam, which is crazy to think about, but it's actually true. And so in the eighties, we're more powerful than ever, uh, even after Vietnam and everything else, because it's, it wasn't that, Oh, we fought the Vietnam war and we lost. It's that Vietnam was one part of this war against the rest of the world. And in other places it went very well. And Vietnam actually helped to sort of shield Indonesia, for example, which was an enormous prize with massive gold and oil that, that is quite strategic in the 70s when gold prices skyrocket because they in the end of Bretton Woods and there's the oil shocks as well. But we have all this oil under our control in uh, West Papua that goes online. It is just, uh, it, it's amazing to think about how they were able to do that, but in this case now, in the 2020s, I don't see the U.S. as having the structural and material uh, power that it had back then. I think that it's a different time and that they're not going to be able to coordinate this and that there's probably a financial crash of some kind coming 
the, the contours of which I don't know, but that regardless, these other factors of the, the real productive capacities of China and Russia, for example, and the potentials of these countries and their ability to do business in other parts of the world, maybe even in Latin America, it may just force the U.S. to change the way it's doing business. Maybe that's a part of, maybe we're seeing a little bit of that already with Brazil. I mean, they haven't overthrown Lula. Lula got out of jail. In in the past, you could have expected him to be killed in some way, uh, that, that, that between the oligarchs of Brazil and the U.S. elites, they could have arranged to kill that guy, and they didn't. Uh, Bolivia, the coup there ultimately failed. I mean, there are these little signs that show the U.S. is maybe trying to, and, and they recognize Maduro finally, or they stopped this whole Juan Guaido thing. I mean, there are little suggestions that the U.S. is kind of being forced to moderate its behavior, but it's also s- small compared to like what's really needed. But I, I have to wonder if there are some voices who are thinking like there is a we have to bow to reality. Ultimately, they they understand they have to be rational. And if they can't control things, then at some point they're going to have to give up the ghost. But I don't know what that's going to look like. Me neither. One of my big concerns is just like the low quality of individual that, be, that rises to these high positions now. Um, because, you know, you're talking about much bigger structural sort of geoeconomic um issues and uh realities i should say and um uh, separately but and relatedly you know we also have that the people sort of people who are attracted to service uh in in these high positions and it's just like why would anyone uh want to you only are going to get people who are interested in it for self-motivated means at this point. And so you look at the people who, who are in high positions in the CIA, high positions in the state department, high positions in the military. Um, and they're just, they're, they're not like as impressive of human beings. I mean, you could talk about these folks in the past who, who were quite um, evil. You could call them mass murders in, in some cases. Um, but usually they were, in one way or another, you know, you had brilliant and eccentric people leading the U.S. empire in the, in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and so on. Um, and now, you just it just seems like really dumb people. I'm sorry. I really don't mean to be so, uh, you know, blunt or rude about it. But you look at someone like Anthony Blinken, just an absolute dishwater, this gray face, just dishwater, gray individual who has absolutely no charisma whatsoever, uh, just believes in nothing as far as I can tell. Uh, and it's just, I don't know, is he, what is he doing? Just serving his time till he can be a partner at a law firm and make $7 million a year? I don't know. Look at Michelle, what's her name? Michelle Flournoy, the, um, the uh, I, she's probably uh, a high-level political undersecretary at the Pentagon. Uh, and same with uh, Michael Morell, who was the director of the CIA. Oh, yeah, yeah, Burns. yeah, yeah. Like, he was on there saying a lot of stuff about taking down Russians and so on. He's made some really interesting statements. He was this higher-level CIA officer, I believe. Yeah, yeah. And if you listen to a guy like that talk, you, it dawns on you that, I mean, he has a high enough IQ to rise to that position, but the, no creative thinking whatsoever. These people are just automatically, they're produced by the system and by the institutions that just automatically produce people that will just give these knee-jerk answers to every single situation, which is, you know, in the case that you're talking about, yeah, just kill more Russians, just start more war. Um, blame the other side, accuse them of what you're doing um, and use it to foment conflict. And when you see these people like at a roundtable discussion, you realize that these are just, uh, these are not good leaders. 
uh, to put it in, in the most mildest possible terms. Like, um, I it's, honestly, it's self, it's self perpetuating at this point. I think that they don't, anybody who had any decent person who was, I don't think you very often have disembodied intelligence that is totally away from like wisdom or normal humanity. But, but what is required from these positions, they, they want, they want people who are smart, but they have to believe really stupid things. So that's tricky to find that in the first place. And they have to be totally fine with doing really, you know, dis- sinister things and, and lying about it reflexively. But, but almost like they, they have to be people who are able to, to believe a lie so firmly that it like becomes embedded as part of their self. And, and these are, this is what the project has become. There were people who tried to do decent things in positions of power in the past, even if there are people who seemed kind of bad or pretty bad, really bad in some ways, even somebody like Nixon, who they, you know, do take down and, and for different reasons, as bad as he was, just the fact that he had some independence of mind and actually wanted to do some things that were unhappy, that were unpleasing to the people running things, they get rid of him. So everybody that's in any position of high power now, you have to automatically think, well, you you're probably pretty terrible. And then they don't disappoint. They say terrible things and they do terrible things as well. So this is what, where we're at now. You, it's like, it's like expecting the, the next leader of the local crime family to be a good guy and hoping that if he's a good guy, it'll, it'll solve the problem. It's like, no, the problem is the actual institution. It cannot, but be terrible and, and create terrible and present us with terrible people. Exactly. You said it so much better than I, than I, uh, could or did. Um, you know, that's exactly what I mean. That kind of disembodied intelligence, it's not connected to someone usually cause usually intelligence does go hand in hand, um, with, uh, some degree of charisma or creativity. Um, and that's just completely lacking in the officials that we have to, now. I mean, compared to, uh, you know, Nixon w- was a, uh, you know, a, a philosopher and a humanitarian compared to like, let's say Joe Biden, who is not even that bad of a president compared to fucking Trump, you know? So there's, you see a real decline in the, in the quality of just like a human being that is at the top of these, um, institutions, um, and, uh, yeah, you couldn't, you couldn't have put it better than, 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 than what you just did. So as someone who writes, um, in this and, and earns a living as a journalist in this particular moment in history, how do you, how do you cope with this business and how do you avoid ending up like, you know, Michael Hastings? <laughs> well, I drive a, I drive a, uh, an older vehicle, uh, it doesn't have an onboard computer. Um, no, that's, uh, well, that is true, but, um, <laughs> that's a loaded question to put it, the, to put it mildly. You can um, forget the Hastings part if you want, but what <laughs> I mean is how do you write, how do you stick to the conventions of journalism and the, probably the strictures of like what your employers are willing to, you know, or, 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 or are supportive of while writing about these issues? I mean, is there a way, how do you maintain your, your, uh, how do you sort of keep yourself oriented in a positive way as you do this under these conditions, which are so strange? I mean, the reporting is never, isn't complicated at all. That's not uh, in any way fraught for me. I mean, it's the same standards uh, that I would hope any other, um, you know, journalist or professional journalist would try to adhere to. Everything has to be based on the facts has to be stuff that can be proven, has to be stuff that can be recreated by others. Um, you have to show your work. 
uh, and you have to have the documents and you have to have people's testimony recorded. If I have that, then I'll write anything I please. Uh, and I, to date, fingers crossed, I haven't had any problems, um, you know, having journalistic outlets publish this stuff. Of course, where it gets really difficult is stuff like uh, the war in Ukraine. Sometimes when events are, are just sort of hot uh, and, um, you know, burning hot in the moment, it can be very, very difficult to talk about. Um, like if you were to try to write a history of, um, you, of, uh, NATO expansion and how the, the, the sort of deep origins of the, of the, uh, war in Ukraine, that, that can be very difficult to get published in 2022. Uh, but probably not in 2023. Um, I think, uh, it's not, you know, this is something that Noam Chomsky points out a lot. We do have a very free and open society in some ways. Um, the U S is not some, you know, it's not 1984. Um, it's a, it's sort of a weak dystopia, sort of a weak, uh, uh, and, um, disorganized and heterogeneous, uh, dystopia that we sort of stumbled into in the 21st century. And I, I don't feel that I'm going to be assassinated or something for, uh, exposing drug trafficking at Fort Bragg. I, I really, uh, you know, fingers crossed, obviously, but, uh, but I, I really don't, I hope I'm not naive about that, but I don't, I don't feel that that's a, a concern for me now. Um, you know, the, the reality is that the, these institutions that we're talking about and that we're analyzing don't have to silence voices like mine. They just have to control what, you know, the broad mainstream narrative is. And that's very easy to do. I think that, uh, I really appreciated you taking the time to talk to me today, and uh, I'm glad that we were able to get into some of these these deeper issues because these are always on my mind now, and I'd love to be able to zoom out from some particular case and get into bigger uh, bigger questions of our of our time. And uh, I think that you did this well, and you 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 speak well about these issues, and you write important stories in the mainstream press, which is a, a, a difficult thing to do. So I, I, I tip my hat to you, and I thank you for coming on today. Well, thanks very much, uh, Aaron. I really appreciate talking to you as well. Appreciate having me on. Enjoyed talking with you. Um, you know, your book also adheres to those same standards I was talking about, um, even though I think a lot of your viewpoints on these issues would be considered far outside the mainstream, to say the least, um, because you you know adhere to uh, a certain academic gold standard. Um, it's impossible to dismiss your work. So, uh, you know, I think that... Um, that uh, all we can do is uh, keep on doing that, that sort of work and uh, having these discussions. Um, so thanks again for having me on. Yep, thank you very much, and we should do it again sometime soon. Sure thing. I want to thank Seth Hart for coming on American Exception. Also, thanks to Dana Chavaria for producing the episode and to Mock Orange for providing the music. Just to clarify here, I think it was probably uh, college years and my return from Taiwan and then 9-11 and the, the Gwat, the global war on terror being launched, including the Iraq war. That was when I had the most straightforward conception of the Republicans and military people as basically fascists. Uh, if anybody is interested to know what I was thinking in back in those days, uh, or what I was talking about in the interview. Nowadays, well, I do see the U.S. empire as a cloaked fascist project, as most of you are probably aware, uh, with the U.S. going for a liberal-branded para-fascist model of empire. 
But for what it's worth, I have a different take on rank and file military people and even Republicans, uh, which is to say that if we accept the humanity of everyone, we have to understand how history and culture and economic forces have shaped and influenced all these people who ultimately are not the leaders or even beneficiaries of this project. I hope that everyone appreciated this episode. I think Seth Harp seems like a throwback in a good way. He writes about these deadly serious matters, and he works to connect them to the larger story of our times. What has been happening in Fort Bragg, uh, it seems like a sad but predictable consequence of this war machine that we have created. We can't continually unleash monstrous violence around the world without creating monstrous actors Stories like the Fort Bragg murders demonstrate this for those with the eyes to see. This is valuable work, and that's why we chase the light. What am I missing? What can I